Hello and welcome to Under the Hood, a brand new podcast from 11FS and Synapse. We're lifting the lid on banking infrastructure and taking you deep into the technology that's disrupting traditional models, shaking up the system and improving the financial lives of customers around the world. Welcome to episode four of Under the Hood. I'm Simon Taylor, co-founder of 11FS, and I'm joined by my co-host, the one and only Sankit, the CEO at Synapse. How are you doing today, Sankit? I'm good, Simon. How are you? Yeah, really, really good. I am excited to get into all things anti-money laundering, and let's just really, really peek under the hood properly. So in our last show, we looked at banking licenses and how not having one is no longer a hindrance to offering financial solutions, how third-party providers and license holders are opening up the ecosystem to greater innovation and competition and changing what it means to be a bank. This week, we're going to look back at banks, we're going to look at financial crime, uh, how banks can best protect themselves, and the role of the whole ecosystem in, in protecting itself from financial crime. And to dive deeper into this, we are joined by some excellent guests. First up, we have the one and only Livia Benisti, who is Global Head of Business AML at Banking Circle. Welcome to the show. Uh, remind everybody about Banking Circle and your role there. Thanks, Simon. Uh, Banking Circle is a financial infrastructure provider, providing infrastructure for banks and PSPs. I'm the global head of Business AML, uh, which effectively just means head of AML in the first line. Fantastic. And joining Livia, we have uh, Rob Evans, who's co-founder of Fintrail. Um, Can you uh, tell our listeners who Fintrail is? Hi, Simon, and thanks. Uh, Yeah, Fintrail, we're a consultancy specializing in financial crime prevention and compliance for mostly for fintechs, but also financial institutions globally that are looking to transform or enhance their financial crime prevention measures. And Sankit, you brought a friend. Yeah, uh, along with them, we're also super happy to be joined by Sheetal. Sheetal works at Synapse. She's our VP of Compliance and Legal. Sheetal, do you want to introduce yourself to everyone as well? Sure. Thanks for having me, Simon. Sankat. I'm the VP of Legal and Compliance. So in that capacity, I oversee our legal team um, working on product constructs, uh, third-party agreements, um, and then regulatory licensing, and then also oversee our compliance team. That's really um, the overall AML regulatory program, including BSA, KYC, and our program design. A good mix of nerdy acronyms that we'll get into there. <laughs> Algorithms too. Let's have some of those thrown in. We'll get into all of those. Um, and uh, let's just jump right into the discussion. Let's unpack some of those uh, terms. Uh, Livia, do you want to start us off? What is financial crime? Because it's uh, it's quite a broad subject. It is quite a broad subject. Um, and I think in, in many ways, it's, it's getting broader what we put under there. Uh, financial crime really is criminal activity either involving property or money or assets or the use of the financial system to mask the the trail of how those assets were attained, if that makes sense. So financial crime could be um, misuse of markets. Um, It could be fraud. Um, So somebody attaining somebody's bank details and and getting all the money out of their account. Um, On the other side, you've got money laundering which is the use of the financial system and the tools within it to mask how somebody attained funds, which would have been from an illegal um, activity or source. Indeed. Um, Shital, is there anything you build on that? There's a lot of terms like money laundering, sanctions, counter-terrorist financing. There's so many other bits and pieces. Yeah, absolutely. I think what's really fascinating in, in my view and my experience of, of viewing the the lens of financial crimes is it's really there's the holistic view and then really kind of parsing it down into really really small trends and and monitoring and I think that's really um, 
how you get to the big picture of trying to prevent terrorist financing and, and any kind of financial crimes is really looking at the bite-sized pieces and being able to really look at data trends um, and patterns and, and really knowing patterns of consumers that then help you put together the breadcrumbs almost to the larger crimes that you're trying to prevent. Indeed. Uh, Rob, um, talk to me about who's on the hook for preventing, detecting, reporting. Like, uh, Who's responsible for all of this? Um, so ultimately, those that operate in the regulated sector, financial institutions being one of them, uh, are almost universally required to meet certain regulatory standards about addressing financial crime risks within their business models. So that might extend from protecting your customers from fraud and some of those measures all the way through to protecting the integrity of the, the, the financial system by identifying and reporting potential money laundering activity. Um, so they all have a responsibility to do that under regulations. Um, but there's also then the fact that they want to do it to protect their reputation and also be a a good member of society in reducing the use of their platforms for the purposes of financial crime. And one of the challenges like Liv um, mentioned is that it's such a broad topic. And in many cases, whenever you see a single, you don't often see a single type of financial crime. So if there is a fraud takes place, just the way it's constructed, there will then be money laundering directly on the back of it. So your systems have to be able to detect all types of processes and different types of um, typology, as we would call it, um, to ultimately be effective. Uh, Sankit, ground this for me. Like, What does it mean for an entrepreneur who's, who's building a business? Um, do they need to understand all of this stuff? And, and what does it mean for the consumer as well? Yeah, I think it really depends. Um, now... Let's try to break it down from the perspective of launching a fintech company all the way back, right? So when you're trying to launch a neo-banking product, either for businesses or consumers, from a regulatory perspective, there are two large buckets you have to really make sure are protected or taken care of. The first big one is anti-money laundering, terrorist financing, pretty much all of the obligations around can your system be used in an abusive manner to, to by and large, cause some kind of harm, either terrorist financing or uh, uh, um, laundering drug money or what have you. And then the second piece of all of this is uh, uh, around consumer protection, which is, are you making sure consumers are getting their notices on time? Are you making sure that you're advertising your services appropriately? Are your fees too predatory? Uh, and so on and so forth. Um, in the old wave of fintechs, so when Chimes and the Varos of the world started, all of this obligation fell onto their plates. So the banks would just delegate this down to the individual fintech companies and say, you are responsible for KYC, AML, sanction screenings, PIP screenings, what have you. Uh, and also, you are responsible for making sure you market and advertise your products appropriately and give folks the right disclosures and timely disclosures. Since then, the landscape's shifted a little bit, and now we're in this place where you have the banking as a service and lending as a service providers like Synapse sitting that say, you know what, we're going to centralize governance around KYC, AML, sanction screenings, and, and what have you. So all the illicit financial crimes, if you may, so that the fintech company can really focus on things that they synergistically want to own. That ends up being your marketing, 
customer service, what have you. So in most cases, banks are still delegating this outside of their own purview as it comes to fintech companies. But if you're an entrepreneur building out a consumer or business facing product and not really an infrastructure platform, the likelihood that you have to own this is decreasing significantly over time. Uh, it's interesting that likelihood is changing. Rob, you've been a veteran of um, the kind of the fintech and the neobank movement in the UK, especially. Um, what what have your observations been as as different businesses have gone through that learning curve? Um, yeah, it's been an interesting journey. I think there are pros and cons to the model that was just discussed. So ultimately, when you are directly in control of your compliance and anti-financial crime infrastructure, you can define your risk appetite and you can model your framework to meet that appropriately. Um, clearly working with your partners accordingly and the regulators, et cetera. But that gives you a lot of flexibility as a founder or as you know, a, an executive team as you grow your business. There are then disadvantages to that because your neck's on the line if it goes wrong. Um, but ultimately then the pros and cons of, for example, under the model that um, was discussed there around the banking as a service proposition, that has real positives, i.e. you can focus on your product. But it, you know, one thing I've always been a little nervous about is consolidation and um, of, of the risk within one entity. Now, if that entity is really hot at managing it, that's fantastic. But ultimately, um, you know, Wirecard was a great example of it. it for a slightly different reason, it wasn't to do with financial crime per se. But, um, you know, it, it can cause a catalyst that causes quite a lot of damage to a number of sub-programs and agents and others. Chateau, you wanted to build on what Rob was just saying? Yeah, and I think to Robert's point about not just the kind of concentration of risk, but I think what's been fascinating as the space of, of fintechs and, and have, as someone who's been in both traditional financial institutions and, and now traversing the fintech space, while the space is changing the landscape, the vernacular is still lagging behind. So a lot of in the fintech world, working with bank partners who are still tied to traditional, more um, archaic notions of how we monitor and how we view risk um, has been an additional challenge and, and really on point to, I think, what Robert was mentioning about the model in general. Um, also makes it a very exciting space, I think, but very, um, very an interesting dynamic to really navigate an aging vernacular with a new technology. I love that. Thank you. You wanted to jump in? Yeah, I think another piece worth noting in all of this is it's actually inherently in the regulators and the bank's best interest um, to centralize governance on these verticals as much as possible. Because it's much harder to scale this if you have 50 programs running on you and everyone's doing it their own way and managing this. Um, so I think the trends in the, like, I think the overall trend of moving in this direction is positive. I do think, uh, uh, to Robert's point, there are still aspects of this that need to be fine-tuned more, like ledgering, like uh, uh, counterparty risk around settlement, ledgering responsibilities, who's doing this, how and what, what does the oversight look like? And not to plug Synapse into this, like one thing that we decided was that's one of the very reasons why we're getting regulated a little bit, right? So you're probably going to see uh, uh, a phase of this happening in banking as a service where there's a light regulation needed on the banking as a service players because there are some aspects of this where you can inherently protect consumers better if you get regulated a little bit versus not. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Livia, you've um, some experience in the banking as a service space. Um, what are your thoughts on, on all of that? I think that Sanky's point about there being benefits to centralizing some of these processes is a good one. I think that some of the newer technologies that are coming up, particularly around monitoring, um, won't be able to have as much of an impact as they potentially could until we start centralizing things more along the lines of data and patterns and trends. But my professional view, actually, is that there is also that line of where responsibility sits. So centralizing technology, centralizing the use of that technology, providing fintechs um, and startups with a set of tools that they can use, which are proven, which they don't have to build or buy. Great. But where does responsibility sit? Who's taking the decision when it comes to there being a suspicious transaction or a customer? Who's, as to Rob's point, who is calibrating your risk appetite and who is that being done internally or externally? Because it's essential that you have strategy, risk, compliance aligned as you're moving forward and those decisions are being taken place, are taking place within that ecosystem. I have to be able to call my CEO and say, we've gone too far here and I'm not doing this. And that's important that it sits within one ecosystem. When on your journey do you need that though? Because like we're in a position where entrepreneurs can get a get a something that feels looks and feels like a bank in customers' hands in eight, ten, twelve weeks at this point with with open APIs. Um, Chital, when does that have to be in place? When do you think that's right? Yeah, I mean, in my view, it really is throughout the entire life cycle of our relationship, and and in the in our experience with with Synapse, particularly um, working with a bank partner and having other third party partners. You know, we have a formal process where it's happening up front at the onboarding when we onboard our customers, but really it's ongoing. And I think what to to Livia's point. The stratification of risk, I think, is really what's at the heart of it, because oftentimes it is on us. And ironically, um, it's not really only being able to have data and tools to monitor, but also having controls. And I think controls are important to regulators and to our bank partners. Um, So not just being able to identify, stratify and calibrate risk, but then to be able to really have controls um, that can kick in when the risk does get exceedingly high. Rob? Yeah, I I think it's an interesting area because something we try and encourage our founders to think about is the direction they want to go with their business. So if you are always going to want to operate under a, you know, for example, with a banking as a service provider, then there is an argument that establishing your own compliance infrastructure is less important. But to Sheetal's point there, ultimately, if you are eventually going to have to deal with regulators and compliance and financial crime, embedding those principles from day one in your business is not that difficult to do with a bit of thought. It's not that expensive, but it will stand you in so much better stead long term because you've already built the culture, you've already got the thinking and the infrastructure in place to then scale quickly. Uh, Chital, I just want to come back to you as well on on some of the terms then. If they are embedding it, where, where do you start if you're going to embed that culture? Do I need to think about my onboarding and my KYC? What about transaction monitoring? Can you do some definitions for me of those parts? Because they seem cr- so crucial. Absolutely. Yeah. At, in context of onboarding, um, I think at the heart of it is KYC. And really, KYC stands for know your customer. And I think the irony is while traditional financial institutions and what we see often with our bank partners is they almost um, are nervous about a fintech's ability to perform KYC. But I think what we see is it's really an opportunity to leverage um, 
an area that that financial institutions just don't have access to. Because when you're a fintech, you know your customers, you know the use case, um, you know what end users are trying to do in a way that banks don't have visibility into their own users. And so I think it's really an opportunity to capitalize and having that basic understanding of who your customers are can really establish um, your risk parameters and really use case from the, from the get-go. So I think that is where you start. That's at the heart of it. And then building on top of that are um, rules that you can, rule engines and rules you can have to monitor um, transactions. And, and that's where you get into transaction monitoring. Uh, Livia, build on that for me. I think there's something interesting about the tools that now exist that maybe even some big banks don't have that are available if you're picking up off the shelf from, you know, I, I think about Comply Advantage and Alloy and all of these sorts of companies that are that are out there. Can you give me an example of how that differs from the way it may have worked at a bank historically? Yeah, sure. So I think um, Shita's point about knowing your customer and the use case from the outset and being able to start afresh in that sense is just worth its weight in gold, right? That you know exactly, well, you know what you're offering and you know what your customers are coming in. And as you're scaling up, you have the ability to kind of calibrate accordingly. There are obviously risks of setting up a new bank and they tend to get targeted massively by fraud in the early stage, but we'll put that to the side for the moment. I think when you're talking about the larger banks, your article recently about the core banking systems at these large banks and like what led to the city era, for example, FlexCube Oracle, um, is much the same. These things would have been embedded with large transaction monitoring systems that are um, on-prem, clunky. Um, when I was working in large banks, it, there was a kind of a transaction monitoring team and they were effectively coders who had access to this back office that I couldn't personally understand, despite having been in AML for over 10 years. Um, the rule set, there were T numbers and codes and all of this. Now you're setting up, you've got um, an array of technology solutions which are cloud-based are easily dynamic, they're flexible, configurable is the word I'm looking for actually. So a compliance officer can go in and say, okay, I've got these sets of customers, I'm gonna bucket them here and I'm going to apply this rule, that rule, this rule. Um, I'm using my hands and realizing that this is not gonna go out on camera, so that's not helpful. But essentially it's very drag and drop. Um, these tools are configurable, they're easy to use, they've got nice colors and they help explain what's actually going on. And seeing some of the ones that are coming out, it's getting more and more interesting positionally with the use of AI. The best thing they can also do is get their data set up properly. You don't actually need a lot of data for great AI, but you need good data and clean data. And they have the ability to do that. So if you can start from scratch, know your use case, take advantage of these tools, you are pretty well set um, if you can maintain that and scale that to do better in the longer term. And I think that's a fascinating point, Livia, because I think when you look at traditional FCRM tools and companies that have really been in the marketplace for, for years that have done really well, um, they're very catered to traditional bank banking institutions. You look at the, the Fiserv's and the Optimizes, they're, they're really built for banks. And so I think as this, um, to Sinket's point, as really the responsibility shifts to non-traditional financial institutions like fintechs, um, the technology has to shift as well. And I think what's been really exciting to see at Synapse is using our own data to build our own rules. And that really just gives you such a better baseline because the entire effectiveness of monitoring is understanding your baseline, right? Because everything is really then looking at deviations from the baseline. So I think using your own data and being able to build your own rules um, is really the way of the future as we look at non-traditional financial institutions. Yeah. And I think if I, if I could just respond to that, I think um, the benefit, like banking circle, we're a financial intermediary, right? We're right in the middle. So I've done correspondent banking and some kind of financial intermediation throughout most of my career. And it's fascinating because you're in the middle of a bunch of transactions and 
that's where you start to see data you can pull in. If you're set up properly, you can pull in data from your customers, your customers' customers, and you start to build this network and this web. And that's when things get really interesting. If you're setting up and you're doing a one-to-one transaction, it's just, you know, me to Simon, and that's you're seeing those one-to-one relationships, you're not getting a huge amount. So that is where a banking as a service or an infrastructure type client can do some really cool stuff. To your point about these tools being built for banks, I don't even think they're serving banks very well. Right. You look at the U.S. bank case and, and some cases in CBA, the Australian case with the ATMs, it was like a switch was off. And, you know, I used to train my teams and they'd be like, oh, how dumb a switch was off. No, it, it's unbelievably easy. There are hundreds and thousands of these so-called switches and T codes and stuff. I'm not even sure that these tools are serving banks that well anymore either. And Rob, I want to come to that because uh, I, I put out a blog post a few weeks ago where I, I posited that um, anti-money laundering is probably the most ineffective um, policy tool we've been been hitting for a while, and not necessarily because of its intent, um, but more because of how it's executed um, in terms of the, the underlying assumptions. Now, uh, I have a penchant for the uh, things that are a little bit more out there, and I'm sure you, <laughs> you, you may not fully agree, but um, build on, build on Livia point do you think that uh, effectiveness is a term that's really coming in here and, and and what does it mean to be more effective at managing um, financial crime yeah absolutely i think it's exactly where we as a profession are going to start to have to go with what we do around financial crime effectiveness and being able to evidence that the measures and steps we're taking and the, in, in in some cases the imposition placed on customers is to achieve an effect of some sort and that has been where We've really, as an industry, but, you know, I think regulators would hold their hands up to it as well. They've not focused on effectiveness. They focused on a uh, setting a minimum rules-based sort of standard to regulations, which is, is very understandable. But there are definite indications that regulators are starting to change their appetite to this. And you'll see some of them both in the US, Europe, UK, starting to talk about the role of effectiveness in anti-financial crime activity. And as a professional who wants to move the bar and wants to do better, I think it's absolutely what we need to do as a profession. Yeah, it used to be the banks were measured on have they followed the process Correct. and nobody cared yeah. if the process was effective. And actually, did the process work is, is quite an important question. Uh, Sanke, I want to bring you back in here. Um, I guess um, Livia mentioned that there's there's quite a lot of pitfalls when you're an entrepreneur building a business. Um, quite often, they're being attacked for fraud. What are you seeing and observing as entrepreneurs go through this cycle? What are the most common questions and, and learning things that people go through? I think I would even take a step back a little bit and say, probably going to be, probably could get me in trouble, but um, alloy, compliant advantage, secure, they're all resellers of um, existing functionality. And they're probably really sound businesses, but it's not sound science. And that's what you're seeing with entrepreneurs and where the fintech industry is today. Actimize and all of them are not good, but like, the fintech tools are not that great as well. Uh, they're like they're a good interface, but but they're not really solving the core problem because of what Livia and Robert kind of said. Like currently, you're not incentivized by effectiveness. You're kind of incentivized by compliance. And like a good, a really good example of this is like how many just guess how many Jose's a day get flagged in any any sanction screening system because they have a common name. Uh, and how long has that problem existed? 
And who has tried to really solve that problem? No one. And the whole reason for that is you're not incentivized by the right things. So I think that is the first problem. So what you hear from fintech founders today, it's not as much as are we complying by all the tenants of KYC AML sanction screenings. It's more so looking at kind of like fraud and being like, okay, in, in some cases, we're seeing our system getting abused and losing money, while in other cases, we're making this process inherently harder for people who just have common names. Um, and those are problems that are like difficult to solve and like no company is like super incentivized to do it as of today. So so I think where there's a really, yeah, building on what Sinkat said, I think where there's a, a real opportunity for, for fintechs is um, capitalizing on the configuration that Livia was talking about and really customization of risk. And so I think where traditional bank tools and FCRM tools have, you know, out of the box rules that are really, you know, looking to test a specific thing. Um, I think where we have an opportunity is to customize our risk. And so to Sinket's point, we understand who our customers are. So again, it comes back to KYC and being able to build on that and really having a customization. Now, I think the second piece to that is education and educating people who expect it to see a certain, you know, our bank partners and regulators who expect it to look a certain way, expect rules to look a certain way. And I think there will be an education piece um, to help explain that it's not it's not loosening risk, it's customizing risk. And, and I think it's it's tightening it towards where it really is, because if you're having a 20 to 1 false positive rate on, on transactions coming through, 20 good transactions being stopped to find one bad one, you're just creating a horrible customer experience and not necessarily being very effective. Um, whereas you, surely we can do better with data and what we've, what we've got at the moment if we, if we just had better tools. Um, but that comes to Livia's point earlier. Um, and Rob, I wonder if you can build on this around uh, having that data visibility, that data share. What can the industry do to get better at collaboration around that sort of stuff? And, and should they be collaborating more or is it a role for platforms? Um, yeah, really interesting. I think there's a role for platforms and the industry to collaborate more. Um, I think there's been moves in the right direction. Um, and certainly fintech have shown me that and um, probably my peers that I work with, that they are far more open to collaboration. Um, you know, without wanting to plug again, you know, we've we've set up and run a network called the FinTech Fin Crime Exchange that brings together over 200 now FinTechs globally who collaborate day to day on financial crime issues. And that includes where there are spikes in fraud, collaborating with law enforcement. We've just done a big uh, piece with Europol and others on money mules within Europe. Um, and that's highly successful. And it's bringing the data together, bringing the relationships together, but we've got to build trust and we've got to start bringing in other parts of the industry as well. And there are other initiatives. It's not the only one, um, but I definitely think collaboration and that ability to share data is the only way of effectively mitigating financial crime across financial services. Olivia, what are your thoughts? Um, I think that what the FFE has done is is brilliant. I think it is within the realms of what we can do from a regulatory perspective, the best form of information sharing that we have. Um, I particularly love what they do with typologies um, and the collection of different typologies. I think that that's brilliant. My point earlier about when you have multiple institutions across the same platform and you're able to pick out connecting pieces of data, I think is where transaction monitoring and 
the greater use of AIML needs to go if we're going to move the needle. But we are somewhat hampered if you're not an intermediary in the middle of several financial institutions by your ability to share data, even in the course of um, financial crime prevention. And whether it is real or perceived, and I would argue it's a combination of both, data privacy and um, type legislation can make it very difficult. It's very hard to know your boundaries as to where you're in financial crime prevention or detection and where you've crossed the line. Any kind of information sharing initiatives that do exist are, tend to be very clunky and, and poorly, they poorly incentivize participants. Um, talking, for example, about 314B in the US, where you can share information between two financial institutions, but there are conditions on which institutions and you have to participate in a scheme. Only 40% of people are in the scheme. You have to notify the authorities first and get permission to ask for it. And by that point, I mean, you might as well just not bother, quite frankly, it's just taken far too long. Um, so there are technologies on that front that are coming to the fore. And we see FCA tech sprints that have taken place over the last two years have focused on this and looked at things like zero knowledge proof and homomorphic encryption, etc. There are interesting, exciting possibilities, but they require an infrastructure and they require everybody to be on that infrastructure. And that is going to take an extremely long time. So I think that information sharing like the FFE, where people can just pick up the phone and talk to each other and build those relationships, sharing typologies, sharing what they're seeing is, is super interesting. Um, platforms that have access to multiple data points probably have a bit of an edge on this where they can do something but you need the right infrastructure and the right incentives to make this really work interesting Sheetal, any anything to add yeah i think on the topic of information sharing something that i've always loved to see that i just have never seen yet and, and I, you know i think as um this entire space is transforming i think it would be great to have more activism among law enforcement and FinCEN, because when you think about it, you know, even filing a SAR and transaction monitoring, it's really just alerting law enforcement and authorities to what we're all seeing. Um, I've, I've always said, and we've preemptively engaged law enforcement to tell us what are you seeing, what are trends, and almost to have collaboration and sessions with FinCEN and FinTechs on what are you seeing, what are you, you know, because they really are seeing it all. They're seeing what everybody is filing and what everybody is submitting. Um, and so I think it would be really a ne the next logical step on the topic of information sharing to have a bit more activism on that side, as well as as well as amongst the industry. Yeah, I think I will actually like not surprisingly side with Chito uh, um, on this. I I would caution everyone against uh, um, too much crowdsourcing of data. I think I think the data around uh, um, actual. Um, legitimate issues and breaches should probably be more so trickle down from law enforcement to other entities versus cross share between entities. Uh, I'm actually very supportive of uh, um, Bank Secrecy Act and most privacy acts in the US for that precise reason, because we have seen in the past when banks start participating cross board and there is almost no good standard as to how you should be sharing this data, you end up just building biases and prejudices. Uh, um, so I I do think this data has to be kind of like OFAC, FBI uh, um, approved before it should kind of trickle down. So I kind of see a lot of people should probably, I think we should definitely like beef up our SAR process in the US uh, where the government agencies are empowered with better tools so that they can process these requests because they get a ton of them uh, and then have a rapid data share policy that comes right next after that where they can share that data across everyone uh, so they, they can have access to it. But I'd be very careful of making making this like super crowdsourced uh, um, 
And I think like an editorial process um, would essentially be a good idea. Pretty much like the impacts that we've seen on social media uh, uh, and how that can actually like, like wreck the fabric of culture and people. The same thing could happen with banking if we made it too easy for everyone to share data across board. So I think there has to be an editorial process more than anything else. And I think law enforcement is probably the best editorial process that we have right now. Not the perfect one, but that's the best one we have. Um, yeah, I think that there's... You've got it's a really good point in there, obviously. I think what information you're sharing and how. If if you are sharing information, obviously you can't tell someone if you filed a SAR, but if you're giving somebody the impression that you have suspicions about an entity, it's sort of, you know, pre-AI based um building a bias into the model, I guess, before AI even became an issue, right? You're just doing it with with words and phone calls. Um so I agree on that front. I think the nature of the data that gets super interesting when you have access to a lot of data on the Qualitative side, the sharing of typologies in an environment like the FFE, where you have um, multiple startups operating in kind of similar spaces, and they're probably all being targeted by the same very similar fraudulent groups. Sharing that kind of information can be incredibly helpful, often because um, startups either have marginally less experienced compliance teams to kick off, or they have someone that came from a big bank like I did before I went into fintech. And quite frankly, um, whilst I had a certain amount of very specific experience that was related to big banks, it's very different when you go to try to take on all of compliance for a startup. And I probably would have failed miserably at that point. And I'll hold my hands up to that. There's been a lot of learning. Um, so there's that kind of qualitative experience. Um, but I think that the, the data sharing element cross border, cross institution gets interesting when it's almost without judgments. It's when you can see if, if you will ever get to a point of being able to see where someone is attached to multiple accounts, is doing circular transactions, because people are not really anymore conducting mass fraud within one organization, particularly a startup. They're doing it across several, um, and you need to be able to see that. That's the kind of data that ideally we'd be able to see. Um, it's just I don't know how possible that will be in the near term. Yeah, I know. The six super tempting, but um, the potential consequences of that are just so severe. Like I, I just worry that it might actually hurt more people than help. Interesting stuff. I, I love all the perspectives here on on how we pr uh, help prevent it. I, th I do think that typologies is different to sharing underlying data. Like if we're seeing this type of attacker from to go for this type of thing, that just makes complete sense. Um, but uh, you know, I, I'm interested is as we look at this um, from a consumer experience perspective as well. I think you, uh, Libby, you mentioned the word tipping off um, when you're building a uh, a brand new fintech. Um, Rob, I mean, you've probably seen this plenty of times that you're, you're not allowed to tell a customer why you close their account. How do you handle that from a consumer experience standpoint? And how do you prepare an entrepreneur who's, who's building consumer experiences for, for this world they've gotten themselves into? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. And I've had some of my most interesting experiences sat with founders and CEOs who are genuinely traumatized by the fact that either one of their customers has been a victim of a crime or that their customers are involved in criminal activity. And, and I mean genuinely quite upset by the whole process. And I think, you know, the first thing to say is that the things like tipping off, it is something that needs to be trained within your operational staff. So um, one of FinTech's USPs is the ability to offer excellent customer experience 
especially in you know uh, consumer focused products so making sure that your teams understand what the boundaries are and that you have an appropriate methodology that will be applied by those teams to dealing with not only customers who are inquiring why their transactions held up for example but when you get the difficult fraudsters who know that if they apply pressure through social media and others, they will try and get you to release payments when actually you really shouldn't be doing that. So the one thing I would say is acknowledge it's going to happen, recognize it and build awareness within your team. And then they will be comfortable with knowing what their boundaries are and how they should operate within those. And then I think if you can get that framework right and you can support them through that process, because it's not pleasant having people pretending they've got crying babies in the background and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, if you can support them through that process, you'll have a much better and much smoother um, operational framework that supports your customer. She told nobody tells you when you're building one of these businesses that this stuff's going to happen. I guess you've experienced the same thing with your own founders and CEOs, um, clients of Synapse. Absolutely. And I think to piggyback on what Robert was saying, um, Syncat loves the word playbook. And I think to really have robust playbooks, because I think what we're seeing um, is not just is there outward pressure with social media, but there is increasing pressure on fraudsters um, complaining through the Fed and through other CFPB. And, you know, with the emphasis on consumer protection, um, almost leveraging consumer protection for, for illicit purposes. So really having a playbook that the team is well-versed on and how to handle really the investigation process and then really being able to point to legitimacy of processes. I think that uh, is just uh, an, an ugly truth that nobody tells you about. But Sanket, who have you seen that's done this well? Have you seen this handled well? And um, what does good look like from a young business's standpoint? Yeah, um, I think I would I would start by saying this is probably one of the hardest things to perfect, like uh, because it kind of like centers around uh, diligence and process and, and and empathy, and you're kind of like in most cases expecting people to do not what seems like the kindest thing, right? Because they, people are going to tell you, hey, if you close my account, I'm not gonna be able to get paid next month or next week. Um, I have groceries to buy, my card's gonna stop working. So you're gonna have all these different things come in. Honestly, I don't know if I would just point to one and say, everyone, like some of these companies have done a great job. I think some companies have emphasis of one over the other, which is a function of their culture and the experiences they've had. So Chime, my personal experience is very professional, but very process driven. So like kind of straightforward and um, they move forward with whatever they need to do. While we've seen other customers of even ours, like uh, we had on Juno in our last podcast, much more empathetic, um, uh, so they're less risk of us today, uh, maybe a function of because they're kind of like just getting started uh, um, on some of these areas. And you always like I've seen companies uh, go back and forth on that realm. I think Mercury does a good job on business banking. It's also to be very candid, it's also an easier problem to solve for because like you can kind of like diligence the business and see kind of like what's what very quickly compared to an individual. 
Um, so I think I think on business banking, ironically, it's an easier problem. And then I think someone like Mercury is doing a great job. And I think I've seen emphasis of uh, um, empathy versus process. And companies go through the life cycle of picking one over the other. The sad reality, or at least my perspective on the sad reality is, it's going to look a whole lot like Chime, which is what Shita was talking about, playbooks and process driven. Uh, and the whole reason for that is like over time, uh, that does more good than bad uh, uh, when you when net net everything ends out. Like it's not it's not the prettiest place to be in, and can sometimes be uncomfortable. But my hunch is that's where people are going to end up being versus not. Indeed, um, process um, process matters. It turns out. Um, alrighty, well we've only got a couple minutes left. Um, Rob, thirty seconds to close this out. What have we not covered that you think is going to be uh, improving about the future of, of the world of financial crime? And what are your hopes? Uh, I'm super hopeful with fintech as a whole. Um, I think we're moving absolutely in positive direction. Greater engagement across the community, deploying more technology. Um, And I think focusing really carefully on what we mean by effectiveness as an industry will move us forward significantly in this very complicated battle against financial crime. Uh, Chital? I'm hopeful as well. And I think this space is fascinating and it's really um, transforming legacy processes and, and legacy systems and forcing innovation. So, you know, I think it's really gonna, inevitably the innovation is gonna help us be more effective. So I think the two are really inextricably linked. Let's see. And Livia, how about you? I think that fintech is bringing new levels of customer service and inclusion in ways that we might not have seen previously, not to perhaps the levels of its ambition quite yet. Um, And I think in doing so, it's educating different parties in the financial ecosystem. You know, I think speaking to people at Europol or the NCA or getting them more involved in what fintech is doing, getting them closer to the ground of what's possible is an interesting process that maybe wasn't being pushed far enough before the generation that that is that has started arriving so in that sense i'm I'm really interested to see what happens with those partnerships and that education between public sector tier one and and fintechs going forward let's see thank you final thoughts um i actually have a roadmap for you simon so um there i think four specific things that need to happen and i think we will be in like a much different world the first step is unification of data streams So ensuring that it doesn't matter if it's ACH, card transactions, remote deposit capture, cash withdrawal, you have behind the scenes unified the transaction stream so they don't sit in different silos and have different asymmetric information. So that's that's the first big piece. The second big piece is getting your systems to a place where at the point of onboarding a customer, you can detect the likelihood of identity theft with higher precision than we do today. Third step is building risk and transaction monitoring models that predict on the likelihood of losing money on a customer based on their previous transaction history and kind of being few steps ahead of what is the likelihood that the customer is going to, fintech company is going to lose money after the next three transactions that the customer uh, uh, does. And the fourth piece is more so clustering-based unusual activity reporting, where because you've unified your transaction streams, you're now in an inherently better place to be able to cluster similar activities closer together and then go and research all clusters to figure out which clusters are, are more prone to money laundering and terrorist financing. So pretty much those four things are in the future. I think after that, you're probably 
you're going to be looking at a much more intelligent like uh, um, uh, financial services layer versus where we are today. That's quite the complete picture. Um, I, I love that uh, roadmap, and I'm uh, I'm definitely keen to unpack that on future shows with you, Sankit. Thank you so much, and thank you so much to our guests. Um, first and foremost, Chitel, where can people find out more about you and what you do? Um, my LinkedIn page is updated, and then I am on Synapse's website as well. Fantastic, Livia. How about you? Um, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, which I'm terrible at, better at LinkedIn, and BankingCircle.com for the company. Fantastic. Rob, how about you? www.fintrial.co.uk and that's got information about the FFE and useful info for new founders and others as well. Thank it. Um, just go to synapsefi.com, synapsefi.com um, and same handle for Twitter and LinkedIn as well. And you can find me on at SYTaylor on Twitter, Simon Taylor on LinkedIn, or 11fs.com. And if you like this podcast, remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes as soon as they're released. Tell your friends and everybody you know, pass the pod along, um, and find out more about the show. Um, you can find out more with the 11fs and Synapse social platforms. We'll be back next week with more goodness. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.